I think that the defense of the Weberian state uh, and the left as proposing itself as the defender of the Weberian impartial state is a sign of very deep political weakness. This is not to ascribe um, blame or something. Or, you know, it has to do with the structure of, of history because the problem is that it's extremely difficult to imagine a political order beyond the Weberian state. In, I think in some ways it's more difficult to imagine a political order beyond the Weberian state than it is to imagine an economic order beyond capitalism. Well, this is where we've found ourselves today, where the left is, you know, at its best, I suppose, an upholder of, of the accomplishments of the bourgeoisie, especially right. politically, right? So that me. I agree with entirely. Mm -mm. This is Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and myself, Alex Hochuli. Hello, George and Phil. Hello. Hi, Alex. Hello. So today we're going to be speaking to, or more specifically, I will be speaking to uh, Dylan Riley, professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, who is also on the editorial committee of the New Left Review. Um, we'll be talking in part about a, a new piece in the New Left Review that uh, Dylan Riley has co-authored with Robert Brenner, um, which has been somewhat kind of discussed over the past couple of weeks, uh, as well as his new book, in particular, we'll be focusing on that, a book called Microverses, um, which, uh, as we'll come to see, is takes a kind of um, quite particular approach, I guess, to writing about sociology and, and politics today. Have you guys come across this book? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea is a, is a good one, this idea of like writing down by hand some reflections on the current moment and kind of that almost like journaling approach. Um, yeah, so interested to sort of see what comes out of that way of recording your thoughts and, and you know, what, what you and he discussed from from that. Phil? I'm, uh, I mean, I don't know about microverses. I, I, knew, I know Dylan Riley by reputation in terms of his, um, his book on the civic foundations of fascism, though sadly not read it. But I, 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 do, I did read his piece on American Brumaire, which was a piece he wrote some years back um, now, kind of trying to find the analytical framework for Trump. And being, you know, kind of being a scholar of fascism, obviously, you know, kind of he could make the point that Trump wasn't a fascist. And I thought the, you know, the rendition or the attempt to kind of um, render Marx's analysis of Bonapartism and to see how far it fit uh, the Trumpian phenomenon I thought was uh, you know I thought it was uh, good, insightful, and useful. I didn't I didn't um, you know I didn't agree with all of it, but I thought it was a good piece. So I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what Dylan has to say. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited to speak to him. Um, in part because although this isn't something which I plan to um, discuss in depth with him, uh, he has written recent pieces along the same lines of what Phil was saying, but pointing out how radically different our time 
Americans are to those of the 1930s, despite all the kind of spurious comparisons that are so frequently made today. Um, but basically, just the level of density of, of civic associations, something that we've discussed quite a lot um, on this podcast over recent years, just isn't present today in the way that it was in the 1930s. And I think that's always something worth bearing in mind. Anyway, um, going to be talking to uh, Dylan about these themes about capitalism, democracy. Um, it's quite big themes. And then the three of us will be back at the end of that um, with the after party to tease out some of the wider themes. So uh, catch you then. All right, Dylan, welcome to BungaCast. Very delighted to have you on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so um, I wanted to start off by speaking about your most recent book, Microverse, is a, a thin little volume, which is um, caught me a little bit by surprise. I, I very much enjoyed reading it, um, but it's, you know, for those who aren't familiar, it's come out recently on Verso, and it's a series of notes, which I think you, you wrote by hand and then you typed out. And it's on a range of topics, mostly political, but not only, and of various lengths, I think, ranging from maybe a paragraph to four or five paragraphs or something. And I mean, maybe you'll take this uh, as a slight on the book. I don't mean it this way, but it, it's like reading a particularly good Twitter timeline, but <laughs> much better than that too, um, because you don't have the sort of dizzying social media world and the need uh, to insert itself into the attention economy. So actually, it kind of is all the best of of something like Twitter without all the downsides. And I wondered what you found uh, writing it, you know, um, notwithstanding the kind of difficult um, personal and, and broadly social situations in which you found yourself in writing it. But I think the, you know, the bookliner describes it as a process of enforced contemplation. And I wonder if you found it satisfying, a bit like journal writing is. Yeah, I think journal writing is probably a good, uh, it's a good analogy for what I was, uh, I was doing. So I mean, for reasons that I explained in the preface to the book, uh, the method of composition was really dictated by my circumstances. Um, dislocation of COVID, dislocation produced by my wife's illness, um, meant that the only thing I could do really was the only kind of uh, real writing I could do was in this very short form, um, kind of handwritten way. And, um, you know, the, it, I, I just have a lot of things that are kind of circulating in my head all the time. Um, and I just thought I will just try to, you know, get these things down on paper. Um, it does require a certain amount of, there, there's a certain kind of discipline to doing it. Um, that uh, one, it, it requires actually a quite sharp break with academic routine. That's what I would say was the most important thing for me. Um, kind of the very heavy reliance on an apparatus of references, things like that um, yeah. were impossible, which allowed for a certain form of directness that that was very satisfying to me, I would say. Um, but it is interesting that you say it reads a bit like a Twitter feed. My my brother actually said that as well. He said, oh, you need to get on Twitter after he looked at them. I'm not sure. Like, I can't, I don't see a cause. There, maybe there's some subterranean causal connection between the two things. But, but what I, I was doing was really dictated by a set of circumstances that were pretty personal to me. I wasn't thinking about that, although I, I, I think I produced a sort of form 
that was analogous to uh, you know a kind of Twitter feed. So yeah. no, for sure. I mean, I guess it, it the reason I say that maybe is because when I am reading something interesting, it often provokes various thoughts, maybe not related or not related to what I'm reading, and then I just feel like tweeting them out, not kind of mm-hmm. as a way of communicating with anyone necessarily, but more just as a kind of journal jotting down some thoughts and provisional sort of ideas. And so it, I mean, I, I that prompted me to th- wonder whether um, you were reading the things you wrote about, wrote notes about. Um, so, you know, you make critical comments about the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu um, or things about racial capitalism or whatever. Were, those, were these things that you were researching or reading about that then prompted you to like write a little note about it or was it completely spontaneous? Yeah, there's re- there's reading obviously behind each one of those things. I mean, particularly, I mean, um, I've engaged with Bourdieu in a number of different places. Um, uh I don't know if you know this, but there was a very long and somewhat contentious debate in the pages of the journal Catalyst, and uh, I kind of hashed out my uh, views in a back and forth um, kind of context there. And some of this, so I have it all, you know, I have sort of have these ideas, and I just wanted to kind of get them down in a very compressed form. And on racial capitalism, I was, um, you know, reading the the, the main things uh, th- that had been produced, particularly Cedric Robinson's stuff on that um so yeah there's a lot of reading behind the notes um but i didn't want to burden them with a formal apparatus and uh, uh, you know things of that nature so it was just sort of like well what is my actual view about these things and how can i get that down in a very compressed way that's accessible um but hopefully accurate (laughs) It's the same time. So yeah, no, no, it, it's good. I think it, it it resolves a lot of, I mean, not that this form would be the only form of writing, but in at least in, in what it does, it kind of resolves some of the problems with a lot of academic writing, I guess, where it gets past those things to to kind of communicate some ideas most more directly. Um, and I think a lot of this style of writing, when you encounter it, tends to be kind of um, a little bit you know, contemplative or withdrawn or something, but there's a lot of actually satisfying elbows you throw at intellectual and political enemies throughout it. So it makes it kind of very worthwhile read. Um, so several times you, you, I guess what you, you know, to, to use the Twitter analogy, you subtweet, um, you know, some maybe <laughs> academics, um, like anti-theory academics specifically, those who think you don't need theory because maybe society can just be understood without it. Um, but that in making that claim, you argue, they're actually advancing a theories. Um, so, I mean, I think for listeners of this podcast, you probably would find a lot of um, people, you know, it's sort of an easy crowd to defend theory to, but nevertheless, I, I wanted to ask you what you, uh, what your defense of social theory is and specifically what its political importance is. Yeah, I think the defense, I, I actually think the defense is, it's fairly straightforward on this. So I guess to, to sort of set it in context, um, this is probably particularly, it may be a particularly US or at least Anglo-American uh, thing in the social sciences. Yeah. That is to say, you know, the idea uh, basically being that, oh, well, you know, in the 19th century or whatever, we had these guys, we still sort of teach them to, to undergraduates. Um, they're, it's largely a decorative enterprise uh, that, um, you know, is kind of something that just people who are kind of worried about the symbolic uh, decoration of their disciplines are really, you know, interested in. But what we need to do is to get down with the... Uh, difficult business of doing, you know, kind of empirical research. And that's, you know, mostly doesn't require um, 
theory, or at least it doesn't require connection to kind of the classics in any real um, deep or meaningful way. In some ways, there's a paradoxical convergence between that attitude and the rise of a, of the, of a certain kind of uh, attempt to kind of overthrow the canon from the perspective of, uh, you know, uh, offering kind of post-colonial critiques of, of sociology or, um, you know, the, the various projects of decolonizing the syllabus and so on that have emerged very recently um, in sociology in particular. And so there's a kind of there's a kind of skepticism about the theoretical core of particular of the sort of discipline I'm coming from sociology that's you know kind of emerged I would say pretty pretty um pretty much in the last five years or so mm. um so how do we what's the right kind of orientation to all that I mean what I say about theory in in one sense it's a very simple point which is to say I mean for the against the sort of positivists let's say a positivist empiricists if you can use that term, you just say uh, there's no choice between being theoretical and not being theoretical. It's just a choice between explicit and implicit theory. An mm -hmm. explicit theory is always better than implicit theory. And anytime someone presents themselves as being a theoretical, it's usually not that hard simply to um, explicate the implicit theory that underlies their supposedly a theoretical claims. And that's kind of, I would say, that's the move that one makes in defending theory. So, you know, you, you, you don't have a choice. It's just why either you're being explicit or implicit. Um, I think on the grounds, on the other side, so the other kind of line of attack here um, that, that is coming from, you know, the, 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 what I'm calling, what I'll call just with the moniker, the sort of decolonizing the syllabus crowd. Um, I'd say... Um, it's a it's a slightly more difficult mm, sort of thing to think through, but we have really, I think, um, the the problem is that many of the critiques that are coming from that line, and I, I'm thinking here particularly of people like Raywin Connell or um, Germinda Brambra. Uh, these are people who are. Uh, advocating for a kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, an opening of the, of, the, of the canon and so on and so forth, which is, in, in one sense, it's fine, but they tend to converge paradoxically with the positivists in the idea that what classical theory is, it's really a symbolic project um, that is about providing a patina of legitimacy to kind of professional social sciences. So there's a kind of cynicism about theory, both from the positivist side and from the kind of post-colonial side that kind of has to be pushed pushed back upon. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's any reason that, you know, that what people should read or what people should consider theory should be closed off. But I do think that we ought to um, we ought to understand that it's a real intellectual enterprise. It's not um, symbolic window dressing. That's just, I think, yeah. uh, that encourages a kind of cynicism about it, which is deeply unhelpful, both intellectually and politically. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you, yeah. as you say, they're the kind of post-colonial kind of critique of and the attempt to um, revise the canon and so on. They're, they're people who are ultimately uninterested in ideas, so there's very little discussion of what alternatives um, might be might be canonized, as as it were. Um, 
I would say at least I don't know if they're uninterested in ideas, but at least so far as I've seen, there hasn't really been a serious attempt to make the argument in terms of ideas. That is to say, hmm. we don't see serious internal critiques and then the uh, this sort of offering up of a new um, kind of position or something that resolves real intellectual difficulties. What we see are some sort of quasi-dogmatic statements about what people should think and here are some other folks that we should read, but the, the reasons for that are never fully articulated. That's what I would say. Right. No, perfect. So, I mean, uh, turning, I guess, not specifically to social theory, but kind of sociology as an enterprise as a whole. Mm. Um, and uh, listeners will excuse me for um, starting off in a way that sounds overly kind of academic and concerned with with disciplines. But there's a reason for this, because your book is obviously not, you know, kind of formally academic, as you say, you kind of dispense with all the referencing and all that kind of thing. Um, but also that in it, you make very important political um, argument for um for sociology and also for um for for kind of politicizing questions which seem maybe you know in quotation marks academic or methodological or whatever um so mm -hmm. I, I feel like the, my um problem with sociology on the other hand is that sociology can sometimes seem like an escape from politics and maybe even a necessary one so the you know the void today between um society and formal politics means that we're not organizing parties um, we're just masses and not classes. And all this means that you can't read off the social world from what's happening politically, you know, like the politics and political parties don't represent society. And so in a way that kind of makes sociology more appealing today, because you kind of turn the lens away from politics mm -hmm. and go, ah, what, are, what, you know, problematize the people as it were, you critique the people go, what, what are they thinking? Why do they behave this way rather than kind of thinking purely politically and, and strategically? So, I mean, just the question concern whether, well, first of all, whether you kind of recognize this turn towards sociology and away from politics, which is perhaps necessary in less politicized times. And two, how do you make mount a kind of political defense of sociology? Or how, do one, how does one politicize sociology without it being kind of, you know, kind of cultural mm. theory where you, you know, look at movies and go, oh, well, what does this express about what people really think? Because people aren't saying what they really think or aren't manifesting that politically, organizationally. Yeah, that's a. Um, it's well. There's a lot in the in in the question um, that you're you're putting forward. First of all, I think this, I think this idea that, um, and this is, I think this is something that I very much share with the perspective of you know the 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 podcast. This idea that there's a, a kind of disjunction between society and politics uh, is an important one, um, and that we do live in a, in a world in which. As you're suggesting, in a sense, the political struggle is not really a cue or index to the real structural fissures that underlie kind of social inequalities. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, in terms of the the turn towards sociology, as a so the the the, the idea really of, of kind of digging under the surface, as it were, of politics, I think is what you're suggesting that there's an appeal to that. I think that's an interesting idea. I think what I would say about the relationship between sociology and politics, it might. Um, so there's it, it, there's two ways of thinking about this. One, of course, is the way of okay. So what relevance does you know does sociology have to politics? What can it say? How can it inform um, 
political debate? How can it form a left perspective? Um, so let's bracket that for now. I'll come back to it. But the the actually before we get to that point, I I want to actually start with a question of what does politics offer to sociology? That is to say, in what relationship does social science stand to kind of politics? And I think actually this connects to what you were saying earlier in a way, because the if you think about the kind of, you think about kind of classical Marxism, let's say in the period from 1890 to 1914 or so, where you have these mass kind of, you know, mass Marxist oriented parties, particularly you could say Germany, you know, the SPD and so on, that being the main kind of example of this. And what's interesting about those organizations, of course, is that they were both political organizations, but they were also kind of social science research factories. I mean, they would do these kind of um, ethnographic studies of different areas and so on, where they were going in and trying to um, achieve certain kinds of political results and so on. And they were, in a sense, alternative universities. Um, you know, someone like Karl Kautsky, for example, publishes all these quite respectable books, but he's not a university professor or anything. So there was this way in which there was a form of social science that was connected very, very organically um, to politics. And 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 the, the, the relationship obviously went in the direction of, you know, sort of providing uh, strategy, tactics, and thinking to the working class base. But the political context also gave a direction to the research. It defined certain problems, questions, and discussions, and allowed things to build in a certain kind of way, right? Um, so that, uh, that political orientation, I think, is actually quite central to a, a, um, a viable and relevant social science or sociology, right? And so it's not just that sociology can be politically or could be or would be good if it were politically relevant. It's that sociology, in a sense, needs that kind of political focus to force the kind of discipline forward as an intellectual enterprise as well so the relationship really goes um in both directions if that makes uh if that makes any sense and so now what we have is a kind of social science which doesn't have that political pressure really largely doesn't exist um and it, it floats as it were its intellectual agenda is unmoored in certain important ways um and sort of floats above society um and and this is in a, in a in a funny way this is a methodological problem <laughs> it's a problem of how to con how to conduct social science in a political vacuum so things that appear as methodological or technical problems causality you know the posing of questions how we uh you know make inferences from evidence these things which all would appear to be highly technical and highly abstract in a way they actually are reflections of exactly the politics that you're talking about, of the political vacuum in which you have a social science that floats above the, the underlying um, social, the underlying sort of social reality. 
Yeah, right. So even even um, you know, sciences which would be uh, engaged, you know, politically engaged, come off as being sort of like anthropologists looking at exotic, faraway peoples who uh, who they examine at a distance, rather than trying to seek to test their hypotheses politically. Um, as one right. might do. Yeah. Right. Right. So that so I mean, what is the way? How should a hypothesis, for example, actually be tested? Well, it should actually be tested in political practice, ideally, right? So if you yeah. think about it that way, then all of the other ways of testing causality are sort of second best techniques that reflect in some ways a kind of absence of political uh, of political will, right? Yeah, excellent. And Very it, good. Yeah. It's really Gramsci who makes this point, actually. I mean, it's not a new point in some respects. I mean, but but um, but it's one of the many ways in which he continues to be relevant for us, I think. Very good. I, I want to turn out to kind of more concrete political themes that mm. cut across microverses and and some of these also uh, much of your other writing too. Um, so the first is the question of of office. Um, and mm. um, I, one funny bit in in one of the little notes in microverses is that you received this letter from the office of Donald J. Trump, which I, I assume was written after he had already left the presidency. Um, and it's a sort of a fudge because it's not from the office of the president or I don't know how it is in the US, whether it's the office of the former president or I don't know how exactly it's phrased normally. Um, but from the office of Donald J. Trump, it's not like Donald J. Trump is an office that someone can hold other than Donald J. Trump. So it's just like the office, like the space where he works, <laughs> which kind of, right. um, which, which is perfect. I mean, I I love that you highlight it because it does capture how he kind of ridicules and denudes the whole, all the trappings of office as a kind of impersonal bureaucratic thing um, and just makes it completely personalized. Um, so I thought that that was great. And I, you even show some sort of appreciation for, I guess, for how Trump sort of explodes um, the the these sort of pretensions of the impartial, legal, bureaucratic state. What, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on how um, on this sort of unmasking that Trump does? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the notes are concerned with sort of. Um, this reading Trump against the grain, you could say maybe of much progressive left commentary as, as, as you're saying, as, as, as serving an unmasking function to, um, and here it's not just neoliberalism, right? It's actually the, um, the kind of, you could say the ideology of, the capitalist state, right? So, and of course, that's, as we're talking about here, the central idea of the impersonal, impartial night watchman state, this is what, again, the great sociologist Max Weber identifies, it is the idea of the office. It is the idea that be occupied by various incumbents, but that is impersonal in the sense that it it transcends uh, those incumbents. And so that's the basis of the notion of the state as an impartial, uh, as an impartial arbiter of, um, of, of, of social and political struggle, right? Now, what Trump does, of course, is, uh, is to attack precisely that, right? To erode precisely that notion of the impartial state. Uh, 
and it's he does it not at a cognitive level. I mean, for him, it was almost it's just a it's a part of who he is, right? The idea that there could be any separation between uh, him and the position that he's occupying is totally anathema to Trump. Um, so that's like one, and this is obviously a kind of, a, it's, it's a kind of return to, as, as you know, I was saying, it's a return to a kind of form of rule as, you know, informal table companions, right, right around the president, to use again the Weberian terminology. So that's a, you know, that's kind of what, what, what Trump is revealing, and in a certain sense, it's revealing, right, because it reveals, as it were, the the emptiness of the notion of the impartial state, the extent to which the impartial state is not an impartial state. Trump is constantly doing that, right? Or he was constantly doing that, right? Sort of, this is the sense in which the idea that what Trump, that what is characteristic of Trump is his lying and his attachment to post-truth and so on is deeply misleading because what's really characteristic of Trump is his ripping off of the mask of hypocrisies that actually, you know, kind of are, are one of the linchpins of the of the modern um, capitalist state. But it's clearly this is a reactionary kind of move. So the question would be, well, is there is there a kind of left or progressive alternative to that? How do we understand it? How do we understand the form of political authority that's appropriate to, you know, a liberation, sort of a liberatory politics? Um, that, uh, you know, attacks the state, you know, at the micro level in the way that we're talking about here, that attacks the very notion of office. How do you think about that? I mean, the way of thinking about it, I suppose, would be that older concept of cadre, cadre as opposed to bureaucrat, right? Um, this is to go back to Goran Tyborn's, uh, you know, really very interesting book, uh, you know, what does the ruling class do when it rules? He talks about this difference between the bureaucrat and the cadre. We don't really have that now uh, on the left. I think that, um, you know, there that, that, that it's somewhat difficult, actually, to, to kind of articulate a left critique of the state. Um, but that, in a sense, we might want to use the figure of Trump and his unmasking of office as an occasion to do that or to think through those issues. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how, you know, novel the figure of Trump is, or for that matter, Bolsonaro, who mm. did much of the same in, in Brazil. Um, obviously, you can think of various Latin American patrimonial practices, um, which have long melded um, private interests and public office. Um, Berlusconi, you know, probably as, as the kind of most obvious forerunner to Trump, um, did that repeatedly in Italy. So I wonder, firstly, like kind of how how novel that is, how novel you think that is, um, and whether, um, I mean, you know, you say the patrimonial, these sort of patrimonial practices aren't um, something that is unique. It's not like something that Trump did. He just unmasked mm -hmm. the fact that it, to a certain extent, it's always a reality that the impartiality of the state is never really uh, true. Um, but, you know, also, isn't this, I mean, isn't the fact that under normal conditions, especially not under conditions of heightened class struggle, the impartiality of the state is kind of more or less the a, a reality and not just a, a fiction, an ideological fiction. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I mean, um, so I would say um, 
that it does strike me that, um, you know, something did change around 1990. And we saw it uh, with the rise of Ber Berlusconi is the canary in the coal mine to the whole new political phase. And that's yeah. why it's so important to understand that that moment. And and uh, and it's characterized by precisely what you're saying. That is to say, um, the emergence of this new political form, which is no longer the party based around a personality um, and it is also corrosive uh, of the notion of office. And and so we have to understand that. Um, obviously, the the great um, late Paul Ginsburg wrote important stuff about this, uh, you know, about the, the rise of patrimonial politics, the, the importance of family and so on. Um, yeah, and actually, but, just to jump in, yeah. because I did have this noted down that Paul Ginsburg actually has this, just to illustrate, I guess, what this sort of means is that I think when... Um, migrants were washing up on the shores of Lampedusa, an island, you know, very right. south of Italy. Um, he tried to assuage people that things would be okay by saying, no, I've just bought a house there and things are going to be okay right. as if his own, you know, and it's so Trumpian, right? Except that it was, it's Berlusconian because he, he did it, he did it much earlier than Trump did. Um, so anyway, it's just one of those things that Ginsburg highlights as an example of this, which I think captures it very well. Yeah, it is the it, it's it's the, it's the it's it's no accident that it happens in that political system, because in, in no nowhere else in the in let's say the non Eastern Bloc world was the Cold War so structuring as 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 the as the basis of politics, right? And and so the, the sort of if to characterize what what we're talking about here, I mean, um, that's really where you get the kind of I, I guess is this the end of the end of history or something like that's where it first happens that's that's where this thing first uh comes um to, to the fore so it's not in this latest round i would say it's not that new it goes back probably a couple of decades right this increasing um you know personalization and and and, and so on it's also not something that's restricted to the so-called populist right obviously this kind of extreme personalization is, is is kind of happening across the political spectrum in different ways um so you know, those are, I would say that that, that those two things are that, that are, are going on uh, at the same time from about 1990 uh, um, to the present. Um, in terms of, I guess, how, you know, how we understand this is this does is it true that that this that this is that that office has always been kind of, you know, an ideological project that it basically masks what is essentially the pursuit of very very narrow kind of personal almost you know familial interests um i think um i think probably not actually i do think there's something new about about the about the current period mm -hmm. um and uh i think it has to do i think it has to do with the kind of the loss of large-scale political programs, in a sense, which are the thing that give... I mean, if you think about the, the, the initial kind of Weberian configuration, the bureaucracy is supposed to be occupied in, a, in kind of an ideal, typical way by 
you know, a political party which is organized according to an, a program of some sort, right? And which also itself, in a sense, is bureaucratically organized. So there's the rest of the state bureaucracy and there's the party bureaucracy and the officialdom brought into that thing. And in the ideal, case, typical case of modern politics, these two things mesh together so that, you know, there is a, yes, there's a, there's always a charismatic element to leadership but it's a charismatic element oriented to a cause. It's worldview politics, right? Um, but that's not exactly what you get with a figure like uh, Berlusconi or Trump. I suppose Bolsonaro might be slightly different in this sense, but he too is it's highly personalistic. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is different. And I think that in some sense then, if you have the leader who's not really a party figure in any of these cases, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's a, he's a familial figure um, that there, there's a, there's a, there's a much greater kind of, I guess, tension or contradiction between office and office holder in that case. And office itself seems to become um, rather secondary. If that makes sense. I, I'm not sure whether that's too. No, academic. I, I think, yeah, no, I, I think that does though. It, it does make me, wonder and i'm jumping ahead a little bit in in the agenda had jotted down here because it it segues quite nicely onto this question of um democracy as an achievement um so let me explain mm -hmm. a little bit i think if we i guess if we're agreeing that there has been um a certain decline from the impartial legal rational state for all that it is ultimately the state might be the executive committee of the bourgeoisie that um, under normal, that there is, there is still a certain kind of legal rational basis to the state and that it operates more or less impartially in, in the daily organization of politics, right? And if politics is becoming increasingly personalized, the temptation would be to say it's the end of politics, which has led to this increasing personalization, that the end of grand projects, the end of kind of big ideolo ideology and, and, and parties organized on those bases. So, if we accept that, does is the old kind of Weberian state um, then something which was is we should see it as an achievement <laughs> that it was something mm -hmm. that it was a product of class struggle and that it was in some ways even a, a civilizational achievement even if it stopped well short of course of socialism because we're talking precisely here about the bourgeois state. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to throw that question there and I'm going to maybe kind of elaborate on it a bit further after. Um, yeah, uh, so the, 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 the deeper issue, okay, so let's put the issue kind of squarely on the table, which is, th this is something probably worth saying, right? Uh, that the, the kind of radical left, right, um, for its whole, well, not, you know, for much of its existence, let's say, has proposed um, a profound critique of the state. <laughs> there is no greater... Um, critic of the state than Marx or Lenin, right? Who call for the smashing of the state apparatus mm -hmm. and the establishment of something else. Um, but now we live in a period in which the state has been under attack from the right for basically a generation. And so the left seems to find itself often in the position of defending the Weberian state. Yeah, and not just the liberal left, but often the very, the more the sort of you know you could say the kind of 
in the U.S., like the Sanders wing, or in Great Britain, the um, the, the Corbyn wing, right, is de defending the achievements of the state, defending the the, the welfare state. Um, so the question that you're asking is, what should be the orientation of the left to the state today? I think that's the basis of the question that you're asking. Yeah, that's what I was getting towards. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in my view, this idea. I think that the 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 defense of the Weberian state uh, and the left as proposing itself as the defender of the Weberian impartial state is a sign of very deep political weakness. And the weakness is not in any way like this is not to ascribe um, blame or something. Or, you know, it has to do with the structure of, of history, because the problem is that it's extremely difficult to imagine a political order beyond the Weberian state. In, I think in some ways it's more difficult to imagine a political order beyond the Weberian state than it is to imagine an economic order beyond capitalism, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we only have, we, we still are left with these hints, pieces, you know, here and there, you know, uh, the the whatever Marx says in the critique of the Gotha program or or Lenin's you know somewhat disingenuous comments in the in the state and revolution right what what are we supposed to do with these things right so we the the idea I think of I think that we probably I think that the left probably needs to think more seriously about reimagining it's the political order not just the mm. economic although these two things are intrinsically connected because i you know otherwise otherwise what is the left the left is basically the defender of the established political order well and i That's think this is, is. this is where we've found ourselves today where this where the left um is you know, at its best, I suppose, an upholder of the best um, of the accomplishments of the bourgeoisie, um, especially right. politically, right? So that me. I agree with entirely. Mm -mm. And, and so, and and it, and it attempts um, in in more radical, even revolutionary guys to kind of repeat bourgeois revolutions, right? To kind of clean up the state, to get rid of yeah. patrimonial or clientelistic relations, and um, create a, a, effectively a cleaner capitalism. Um, and I think this is this is what's behind a lot of um, the politics of corruption and anti-corruption, um, which I think is which I think is interesting. And maybe we, we could talk a little bit about this because. Um, you've yeah you've there's a lot it. to say yeah i agree with you so i'll just say just to put a kind of one to emphasize actually that your question i mean the fact that the main um kind of left-wing magazine in the u.s is called jacobin is not an accident <laughs> yeah. that's what that's that's the historical function right it's exactly right it's it it is the um in a sense, I think you're you're right to say that the position of much of the left today is to is to defend the most progressive achievements of the of the bourgeois revolution. Yeah, and I and I'm probably aided in that by the right and and the right's um, transformation into the national populist kind of configuration that it is today, in which um, it doesn't uphold its own order very well at all, um, and so you know the, those kind of corruptions 
seep in and and it allows the left to just be an, a kind of fine upstanding uh <laughs> defender of you know of, of civilization of of that that has been achieved by the bourgeoisie um as to kind of corruption and anti-corruption i mean it's something that i've um been very interested with regard to in, in Brazil, which, um, you know, regular listeners will know, I've discussed this in the past, you know, was um, completely subsumed by this spasm of anti-corruption fervor over the past decade. And um, you make some notes on, you know, with, uh, with regard to this in in Microverse, which I thought was very interesting, because um you note how it seems to replace any redistributive or let alone revolutionary politics with a sort of a, a different politics of resentment, which targets the political class rather than the bosses or or the political order as such. And I thought that was quite quite interesting in terms of um, I hadn't seen it framed that way in terms of a, a bit of a kind of um, bait and switch in in a way that that anti-corruption politics offers the masses as a kind of um, a vehicle for for expressing resentment. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, the, 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 so I think that, I, I think first of all, that the, the, the study of the two, the two cases of the main, the two main cases of anti-corruption politics um, in the re most recent period, so many Pulite and, and, and Lavajato yield many insights about the nature of modern politics beyond the local contexts. <laughs> like the, it's a very important thing to understand. Um, and I, you know, my main point is just that the politics of anti-corruption, I think it inherently plays into ultimately the, um, I, I guess we would say the populist right. And it does so because the, the basic impulse of that uh, side of the political spectrum is to say that the state is uh, corrupt and parasitic. Um, we in, we expose corruption, we engage in anti-corruption practices, and what that reveals is that, in fact, they were right. The state is corrupt and parasitic, and therefore, you know, we, we shouldn't give any resources to the state. No more, you know, that, that's the basis of tax revolt politics, all these other things, right? Um, so it's a very, very, um, un very unfavorable terrain for the left to fight on on, on this politics of anti-corruption. Now, you know, I guess I would say in the in the Italian case, the initial anti-corruption politics were more ambiguous politically than they were in the Brazilian case. But I think they ultimately ended up in very similar places. And I, I think the Italian uh, one emerges in the way that it does more because of its historical context, um, where it's still closer to the Cold War and some of the uh, then, you know, there was still a kind of powerful left then, um, albeit weakened. And I think that probably explains it more than more than anything else. Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, you, you probably understand this stuff better than I do. I mean, that's my understanding of it. Yeah. So I mean, one last thing I, on on capitalism and and the state um, before we turn to some of the other themes. Um, one thing which I thought which um, quite challenged me in in reading it um, is that uh, well, is your explanation for why capitalist democracy right? Why does capitalist democracy exist? Why does it persist? Um, and what um, struck me is that my kind of 
default understanding or at least defense for why um, there was democracy, let's say from um, 1945 onwards, is because workers had been successful in disciplining elites into conceding democracy, even if it was um, at the cost of some sort of grand bargain, right? Um, no revolution, but you get democracy instead. You know, that's that's the mm-hmm. kind of compromise that happens um, after after the Second World War. And you are you kind of hinted at a different interpretation, which is actually radically opposed to it, which is, in mm-hmm. fact, that it's not that workers disciplined elites, but rather that elites disciplined workers sufficiently to permit democracy, to, to, mer- to permit this social and political system in which claims are allowed to be made on the social surplus, but with that with kind of not not that much disruption. Um, I, so I was quite, quite challenged um, by this, but yeah. maybe talk us through this sort of argument. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, it's a it's a good question. I mean, uh, so I'm going to say, um, j- yeah, just a, uh, basically, if if we look at my view of this, I'm slightly skeptical of I'm not in, I'm not I wouldn't entirely reject, but I am slightly skeptical of the notion of the working class as really the main driver of um a formal democracy, Weberian state, what we can call bourgeois democracy. And here's the reason why. Um, if you look at, you know, the, the, if you look at the politics of Europe from, let's say, 1914 to 19, let's just be very broad, 1914 to 1950 or so, right? So the initial orientation of the mass working class parties was not toward the establishment of of electoral democracy. They were aiming at something beyond electoral democracy. They were, I mean, even the most moderate of these parties, I mean, um, so, you know, thinking about the German SPD, for example, um, they were aiming at a, at a new kind of political order, right? Um, <laughs> this was even more true in the Italian cases. That those radical parties were destroyed and dismantled by the fascist regimes, right? Uh, And the political systems that had emerged before fascism were unstable. And they were unstable because they could not basically incorporate the competing demands of the radical left um, and, 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 and the right. So that moment, that fascist moment, was part of the construction of, of the post-war democracies. It wasn't an alternative modernity. It was, it was, it's part of the story of what happened. Because the left learned, and you can see this, look at look at the, the Italian case, right? Um, look at Togliatti's kind of shift, uh, Salerno after 1945. We are not going to, the, the, you know, the, the revol- revolutionary project is off the table. We're going to play by the rules of the game. That was a central part of the emergence of, of, um, of bourgeois democracy on the Italian peninsula. Um, in the German case, obviously, the Communist Party is outlawed in the, in, in the West, right? And so that de-radicalization is very much part of the story. And I, I, I understand why, you know, it seems like a very, maybe it seems like a kind of in a, a somewhat, you know, 
flirting with sort of conservative theories of democratization, but there's a very important truth to that that I think we need to sort of register. Now, within that, it did matter that working class parties continued to exist, that there were organizations that pushed for rights, things like that, that gave a lot of substance to democracy after the post-war settlement. But I think it's wrong to see bourgeois democracy really as an achievement of the working class as such, right? It was, an, it was the, the working class had first to be disciplined, right? Because how does bourgeois democracy works? It works by saying, I mean, just simply to put it very crudely and simply by saying the left will leave the basic structure of property alone and can engage in redistributive politics. That's the bargain, right? If the left is going to overstep the bounds, if the left is going to seriously threaten the structure of private property, that program, right, is not compatible with bourgeois democracy. That's just that's my kind of interpretation of this. Yeah, I mean, I I get that. I, I obviously that relied on you know there have there there being or there having been a revolutionary threat to lead the ruling class to concede democracy. Um, it still does raise the question that if that revolutionary threat is defeated, I mean, completely smashed by, by fascism, um, whether why democracy then? You know, I get, I mean, just, yeah. just kind of playing around with this. Why, why then a resumption of democracy and indeed an opening towards um, social democracy, indeed beyond just kind of kind of formal um, electoral democracy, um, and and kind of liberal rights? Why democracy? Why why that return to that? Why that concession at all then? Yeah, well, um, so it, this is interesting. I mean, this is kind of what I'm trying to think through now. This is what my book is kind of about. I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, on a very broad scale. But I would say there's a, a couple of things about that that need to be thought through. The first is that it's not true. I mean, the attitude of capitalists toward democracy is, is quite nuanced and complex. It's not, I don't think we should see it as, um, you know, capital opposed to democracy, working class for it, capital concedes democracy to mobilize working class. The reason that I don't think we should see it that way is that the nature of capitalism is such that it's, it's, its dominant class is inherently divided. There are, there, because of all the specific interests and so on that make up different branches of production and competition, all of these things, these interests need to be compromised. So there is actually there is actually an internal relationship between capitalism and I wouldn't say democracy, but liberal institutions. It's not not completely you know those two things are not completely. Um, uh, separate from one another. So that's one thing that needs to be taken into account. The other thing I think that we have to be serious about is the war and its results. What really democratizes continental Europe? I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, come across as an apologist for American imperialism, but the U.S. the U.S.'s role is massive in this right? It basically reconstructs, it reconstructs capitalism in Europe, and it also basically forces an electoral democratic form on, uh, you know, on, on Western Europe. Now, 
that is not to say that class struggle is irrelevant or that the achievements of social democracy are to be ascribed to the you know to some kind of just broad global political conjunction. No, there are real struggles that take place. It really does matter that the working class is organized and so on and so forth. But there are these other elements. There are these other things that are in place that 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 we need to recognize as very important for the the emergence of um, democracy in Europe. And the final point is about you know the welfare state and how to think about that. Um, so it's obviously, you know, the classic, uh, you could say, northern and Scand northern European and Scandinavian welfare states are, to some significant degree, achievements of the working class. Um, but there are lots of things, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, states can engage in. Uh, political interventions to stimulate demand uh, and try to achieve full employment and stuff that don't require any particular pressure um, from the working class, right? So we need to really think carefully about the relationship between Keynesian policies, social democracy, and working class policies. These things don't always, um, they don't always go together smoothly. Um, and finally, there's the question of kind of Christian democracy. That was a huge part of constructing the welfare state um, in, in Western Europe. There's no reason to hide that fact. Yeah. Um, so I just think I think it's I think the story of the establishment of the of the you know welfare state in post-war Europe is a, is a, a bit it's, it's quite complex story, actually. And now I'll just say this. That there's a very strong temptation, that given the current circumstances of the left, there's a very strong temptation to, to say, basically, well, maybe we didn't achieve socialism, but look, we are the main forces behind all the things that are good that happened in the 20th century, yeah. particularly the establishment of electoral democracy. So I've called this in other places, consolation prize Marxism. <laughs> It's, it's good point. It's good. Yeah, I like. I'd like that. And it, it's not. It's. It, I'm very suspicious of these sorts of arguments. I think that they're not. They. They. I think that they tend, for very understandable reasons. I think they tend to ascribe an agency to the working class, um, in the achievement of things that were, you know, more or less, we could say, bourgeois achievements. Um, uh, that you, you know they they tend to to sort of over ascribe working class agency to them that there's a large literature now arguing that of course the working class was at the basis of um electoral democracy in europe um i'm 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 i remain skeptical um for uh and, and i remain skeptical not so much because uh the working class did not you know, struggle to achieve gains within the context of electoral democracy, but rather because I think it's very hard to attribute the origins of electoral democracy to the working class. Those are two quite different kinds of questions. Now, that's very, very interesting. I mean, just to throw another element in there, which I guess 
might bolster your argument rather than detract from it. But um, let's see how we go. It's uh, it's the argument that was put forward um, by Fritz Bartel and his broken promises. And uh, listeners can check out episode two seven six where we spoke to him about it. But I mean, he he points out that effectively democracy proved better at breaking promises at implementing austerity than dictatorship was, um, which again also seems somewhat paradoxical. And the case, but the case of Latin America and democratization in the 1980s and of Eastern Europe in the 1990s shows that to be absolutely the case. Um, so it's another kind of paradoxical thing where it's like, well, if democracy was the achievement of the working class, then why is democracy a better tool for breaking the back of the working class? Um I don't know if you we have yeah. look. There are many, many resources from the classical tradition to explain the answer to your question. I would point above all to Rosa Luxemburg, who argued, "Look, electoral democracy. How does it work? It works by organizing voters as citizens in in individual. So they they vote as individual citizens. It constructs the mass." as a series to use kind of a Sartrean terminology, right, as of individualized voters. Now, that form of political organization is actually tends to disintegrate class identity. So electoral democracy is not neutral with relationship to class. Now, to add another point, where were the where were the places that the working classes had the strongest class identity in the 20th century in Europe? I would say it was in the partially liberal regimes of Germany and Italy in the period prior to fascism. Why was that the case? Because they had enough liberty, as it were, to organize their own autonomous political organizations, but they didn't have full access to the to the ballot box. And so in that kind of structure, you get these extremely strong politicized class identities. It's no accident, right? Um, so... I think that's part of, of, of what we're talking about here. The Latin American cases in general, I mean, to speak in general terms, the whole relationship between democracy and dictatorship in Latin America seems to confirm the story, the idea that first one disciplines the left and then you can have democracy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's this is not something that is restricted to one or two areas of, uh, of the world. It seems to be a quite general um kind of kind of process um so you know it's just a hard it's it's a very difficult problem what we're talking about here because um i think the the the, the issue is that we need to understand very seriously what electoral democracy is as a form of politics um and we need to think very seriously not only about its origins but then what are the subsequent consequences for electoral democracy on class politics itself it's not clear that yeah. electoral democracy really <laughs> reproduces class uh, sentiment in fact it can be quite disintegrative of that um and so you know these are the things that we have there we you know there's just a there's a lot of thinking to be done on this issue and i think it's a difficult one precisely for the reason that i'm saying that that 
that that the that the left would like to point to some gains, and of course that, that have there have been achievements. Um, but d- democracy is a is a is a hard, uh, very complex nettle to grasp, or something like that. I'm not sure what yeah. to say. No, and it and it's obviously not just a retrospective issue, but a but a very pertinent political question hmm. now um, as democracy becomes further eroded. Um, Right. No, and, and, not just, and not just that? the substance of it, but but in, in, in formal terms as well, um, increasing attacks on it. And so my instinct would be to defend it. But I think we have to think how these things play out um, quite carefully. All right, that's it for the free episode and this interview with uh, Dylan Riley. We are back with the rest of the interview over at patreon.com slash bungacast. Uh, you'll have to subscribe for that. We would be delighted if you would. And we'll be following that with the after party. Catch you then. Rabat ou Panama, la base ou Ottawa. 